Our topic for this morning is on the final restoration of Israel. In our first session on Friday morning, we studied about the modern Jewish state and how that fits within the realm of Bible prophecy. And we pointed out the Bible speaks of two different worldwide regatherings. First of all, a worldwide regathering in unbelief, in preparation for judgment, and specifically the judgment of the tribulation. And that is, the, that is where the modern Jewish state fits within the realm of Bible prophecy. But there is the second worldwide regathering faith in preparation for blessing, which is the blessings of the Messianic Kingdom, and that's the topic we're going to cover this morning. Here's a short rabbi story I picked up in Israel. Some of you come out just for the rabbi story. <laughs> a man went to see his rabbi and says, Rabbi, I really believe my wife is trying to poison me. The rabbi says, I find this very difficult to believe. You probably had one of your arguments and you said things you should not have and she said things she did not mean. Tell you what, you stay here in the office, I'll go talk to your wife and get this whole thing straightened out and it shouldn't take very long. The rabbi left, but he didn't come back for many, many hours, already pitched black outside before he got back to the office and the man was still waiting for him. The rabbi said, I just spent hours and hours and hours talking to your wife. But to be more correct, I just spent hours and hours and hours just listening to your wife. <laughs> take the poison. I want to cover two things. First of all, the basis for the belief in the future messianic kingdom, but then secondly, deal with the four facets of Israel's final restoration. And, the, um, uh, and in dealing with the basis for this, belief, for this specific belief, when we deal with the teachings of early church history, for example, up until the fourth century, the dominant view in the church was what we call premillennialism, meaning the Messiah will return and he will set up the messianic kingdom. They were not quite as clear of Israel's role in the kingdom, and so many of them did understand there'd be a final restoration. Others did not quite understand what Israel's role will be. And... Um, but this was the dominant view of the church until the fourth century. And then two men came forward that uh, began to change the specific uh, belief. And the first of these men were Origen, who introduced the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. What's important for Origen is that um, the deeper meaning of the text, the spiritual meaning, allegorical meaning, and he applied it to the Bible as a whole, including the historical segments. Following him came Augustine or Augustine, who applied those same principles more specifically to Israel and more specifically to Bible prophecy, and came up with a view that, that was a new view at that stage called amillennialism, meaning no millennium. And they do believe in a millennium, but it is a spiritual millennium, and the millennium is simply between the first and second coming of the Messiah. And so essentially they were teaching, we are now in the millennium, and this is the messianic kingdom. As I said before, if this is the messianic kingdom, then we must be in the slum section of the kingdom. It's not as nice as the Bible describes it. And um, therefore, when they... And therefore... Um, 
That's the way they applied, and this became still is a dominant view in the in the visible church. And they would attack our position by saying the only basis for believing in the future messianic kingdom is based upon one chapter, Revelation chapter 20, which is found in a very highly symbolic book. And it is foolish to build a major doctrine about the kingdom based upon one chapter in a book that is highly symbolic anyway. That is what they claim, but that is simply not a valid critique. For example, in Judaism, there was always a strong belief in the Messianic kingdom that would come with the arrival of the Messiah. And Revelation is not inside the Jewish Bible. Yet they understood from the Hebrew Bible there will be a future Messianic kingdom. So it's not based upon Revelation 20. What it's based upon is this. It is based upon two things. First of all, the unfulfilled promises of the Jewish covenants. As we shall see this morning, God made four eternal and unconditional covenants with the Jewish people. And while certain elements and promises of these covenants, uh, covenants have been fulfilled, much of it has not been fulfilled. And for, this, for it to be fulfilled requires a future messianic kingdom. And the second basis for the belief in the messianic kingdom is based upon the un the unfulfilled prophecies of the Jewish prophets. And as we shall see, the prophets took the promises of the Jewish covenants and provided some tremendous elaboration in describing us what the kingdom will be like. And so the twofold basis in belief in the Messianic kingdom is simply two things, the unfulfilled promises of the Jewish covenants and the unfulfilled uh, prophecies of the Jewish prophets. Uh, the only thing Revelation 20 adds to our knowledge about the kingdom is how long will the kingdom last. If all we had was the Hebrew Bible, we could conclude, like many rabbis concluded, that once the kingdom is established, it will continue forever. But now we learn from the book of Revelation, it will not last forever. It will last for 1,000 years, and then will come forever. And so uh, we learn two things about the Messianic kingdom in Revelation 20. Number one, how long will it be? And number two, what will cause the end of the Messianic kingdom? And that is the basic knowledge we gain. Now the question is, why make, why make an issue out of it? Why is it necessary to teach on this? Uh, the church has been divided over this. Why don't we just simply drop the topic and maintain the unity of the church? Well, first of all, the church has divided over many different issues. Not merely Israel's final restoration. Take baptism. The church divided over the mode of baptism, who qualifies for baptism. Is baptism essential for salvation or not? It's divided over communion, whether the uh, bread turns into the real body or represents his body, and the wine turns into his real blood or merely represents his blood, and many other definitions. But this is a major part of biblical teaching that simply cannot be ignored. So let me give you four reasons why it's important to understand the importance of the teaching about the Messianic kingdom and Israel's final restoration in the kingdom. Now, the first reason is to verify God's faithfulness to his word, to establish his promises. Now, go ahead and turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 22. The book of Numbers, chapter 22. 
And the first reason is to vindicate the promises of God. And look at chapter 23, I should say, not 22, chapter 23, verse 19. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Had he said, and will he not do it? Or had he spoken, will he not make it good? And while people may make promises and not keep them, or are unable to keep them, God is simply not that way. Every promise of God must be fulfilled, but also it must be fulfilled to whom the promise was made. If the promise was made to Israel, it must be fulfilled to Israel. And, in, and so on. It can simply, as replacement theology teaches, God trans- simply transferred the promises to the church. Whatever God may do for the church, and he's made promises for the body of the Messiah, that is not in place of his promises to Israel. It's rather in, in, um, in addition to the promises he made to Israel. Along the same line, turn to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34. And look at verse 16, Isaiah 34, 16. Seek ye out of the book of Jehovah, and read, Not one of these shall be missing, none shall want her mate, for my mouth hath commanded, and the Spirit hath gathered them. There was a book already in heaven out of which the Bible came. And he points out that every unfulfilled prophecy is like a single individual who has not yet found his or her mate. And so every prophecy has to eventually find the mate, and the mate will be the fulfillment of the prophecy. And therefore, nothing of God's prophecies and promises could remain unfulfilled. It's important to understand this to vindicate the promises of God. A second reason this is important is because the Bible promises there's going to be a regathering, a restoration of the Jews to the land from which they could never again be dispersed out of the land. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24. Again, replacement theology teaches that um, all, uh, all the promises God intended to fulfill to Israel has already been fulfilled either with the conquest of the land under Joshua or the return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity. And so at that point, all of the prophecies that were intended to be fulfilled have been fulfilled, and there's no future prophecy about Israel that will need to be fulfilled. Look at chapter 24 of Jeremiah in verse 6. I will set mine eyes upon them for good. I will bring them again to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not plug them up. Obviously, the, what Joshua conquered was not the final restoration because there, were ca- there was captivity and dispersion. The Jews returned from Babylonian captivity, but there was a worldwide dispersion in the year A.D. 70 and the year uh, 135 A.D. And therefore, promise like the one found in verse 6, I'll bring them and plant them in the land, and they can never be uprooted out of the land. And still there are more Jews outside the land than inside the land. 
we have a promise of a restoration from which that can never again be uprooted. For the second example, uh, let's go to Amos chapter 9. The minor prophet Amos, third minor prophet, Hosea Joel Amos, chapter 9. And look at verse 14. And verse 14 reads, I will bring back the captivity of my people Israel. They shall build their way cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. And they shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I'll plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be plucked up out of the land which I have given them, says Jehovah your God. So again, this, for this promise to be fulfilled, there must be a regathering from which they can never again be uprooted forced into leaving the land. And for this prophecy to be fulfilled requires a final restoration for the Messianic kingdom. A third reason we should be conscious of, that we'll develop a bit later uh, this morning, is that the land of promise is still just that, a land of promise. Never in biblical history have the Jews ever possessed all of the promised land and settled in the promised land. Even Israel's modern history Never have they possessed all of the promised land and sold all the promised land. And so for the promise of the land to be fulfilled, not only that they will have all the land, they will settle in all the land, they will live in peace in all the land. This has not taken place in biblical history and modern history, and this requires a future messianic kingdom. Then the fourth thing we should keep in mind is the offices of the Messiah. We point out often that he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. And while this is true, he does not function in all three offices simultaneously, but in chronological sequence. So during his first coming, he functioned in the office of a prophet. A prophet is one who receives direct revelation from God and will do two things with it. First of all, proclaim the will of God for his own generation. But then secondly, he will... Uh, predict future events both near and far, but that will be ultimately verifies prophetic office. And when this first coming, he functioned as a prophet, receiving direct revelation from God the Father. He proclaimed the will of God for his own generation, as he does in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. He also predicted future events both near and far, in Matthew 24 and 25. His near prophecies have been fulfilled. His distant prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. But that, uh, that was his function as a prophet during his first coming. And then with his death, burial, and resurrection ascension, underwent the transition from the office of a prophet to the office of, of a priest. And to, to this day, he's functioning as our high priest in heaven, ever making intercession for us. And part of the issue of a priest is to be an advocate, an older word for lawyer. So whenever Satan has any grounds for accusing a believer, then the Messiah can say, lay that sin upon my account. I've already paid for that sin when I died for that person on the cross. Here's a basic spiritual principle that a lot of believers are unaware of. If you're a, if you're a believer, you have a Jewish lawyer sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He's never lost a case yet. He's a very good Jewish lawyer. And that's why your salvation is eternally secure. 
So he was a prophet, he's a priest, he's never yet functioned to start off as the office of king, specifically the king of Israel, as well as the king of the world, that awaits his second coming, which will only then will he inaugurate the kingdom and function in his third office, the office of king. So these are the basic elements why this is a very important doctrine. That's not the only elements, but there are many others as well. Let's move on to the next key part of our outline. The four facets of Israel's um, restoration. Each facet is based upon a specific covenant God made with Israel. And we shall look at these um, in a survey manner. Turn now to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. The passage involves chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, the new covenant. And notice in verse 31, Behold, the days come, says Jehovah, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And notice the new covenant is a Jewish covenant. It's, it's not a covenant with the church, it's a covenant made with the Jewish people, with both houses of Israel. And in verse 32, he specifies this is not in accordance with the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. That is the Mosaic covenant that contained the Mosaic law, which he points out in verse 32 is already used as a broken law, a broken covenant in Jeremiah's time. When God makes a, the new covenant with Israel in verse 33, this will result in inward power, and they'll be given inward power because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to keep the righteous standards of God. And the verse 34, he points out, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says Jehovah, I'll forgive their iniquity, and their sin will I remember no more. And notice he points out, at the time the new covenant will be applied to Israel, it will, uh, it will render all Jews coming to faith. So it will not be necessary for one Jew to tell another Jew, know the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And what this uh, verse prophesies is that the ministry I'm now with, the Ariel Ministries, will someday go out of business. Because our major purpose of two purposes is to share the gospel with the Jewish people, but in the future that will no longer be necessary. Will they simply disband or simply do Gentile evangelism, but Jewish evangelism will cease to be a necessity. And so this is the first facet, regeneration of Israel, based upon the new covenant. Now the prophetic um, development, um, there's, a, there's a couple of passages here we already looked at on Friday, we won't look at them again. One was Isaiah 11, verses 11 and 12. But for our purpose, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27. And look at verse 12. Isaiah 27, verse 12. It shall come to pass in that day that Jehovah will beat off his foot from the flood of the river unto the brook of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, all ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great trumpet shall be blown, that shall come the ready to perish the land of Assyria, and lead their outcast the land of um, Egypt, and they shall worship Jehovah 
in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And verse 2, notice, points out the northern and southern borders of the promised land, which the Jews never had in either ancient history or modern history. But in the messianic kingdom, that will be their decisive borders. And in verse 13, they're coming together for the purpose of worshiping the Lord at the holy mountain in Jerusalem. And what they'll be motivated by to come to the land is to worship the Lord through the true true Jewish Messiah. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. And look at verse 5. Isaiah 43 verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from, um, from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone that is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, yea, whom I have made. Those three key words in verse 7, created, formed, and made. Now, where else do we find these three words used together? In the first two chapters of Genesis, in the creation account, certain things God created, certain things he made, certain things he formed. And from the divine perspective, that that will bring about Israel's national uh, regathering, national regeneration, and so on, will be this very point. That they will um, be able to... um, uh, from the God's viewpoint, only God can bring about a national salvation of Israel. And they use the same three words he used in the creation account. Let's go to um, Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24. And look at verse uh, 7. In verse 7, he says, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Jehovah, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. I promise there'll be an internal change, and they'll all return with their whole heart to the Lord. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11. And look at verse 19. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take away the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them the heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And notice in this passage, he promises to give them a new human heart, a new human spirit. That will give them the enablement to keep God's righteous standards. Now turn over to chapter 36. Chapter 36, where he repeats those two elements, but then he adds a third element. Ezekiel chapter 36. Look at verse 26. A new heart also will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, you shall keep my ordinances and do them. And notice again the repetition of a new human spirit, a new human heart, but he adds also, they'll be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, 
and the Holy Spirit working with the new human spirit and the human heart will give them divine enablement to keep the righteous standards of God. Let's go over now to um, Micah, uh, Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Look at verse 18. Micah 7 verse 18. Who is a God like unto you that pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He'll again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and you will cast their sins in the depths of the sea. Now, he promises uh, a, a national forgiveness of the sin. The sins will be cast into the sea. This is the biblical background to a common Jewish practice that's done every year at the Feast of Trumpets. After the synagogue service, on the, at the morning service, Jews go out to a body of water. It may be a, a beach, it may be a stream, it may be a lake, it may be a river, and symbolically empty their sins, uh, their pockets into the sea. But if you ask them, are you, are you um, certain your sins have been forgiven? The answer will always be, I hope so. They have no assurance of the forgiveness of the sin. But sin is not forgiven by a ritual. It's forgiven by understanding the gospel and believing the gospel. Let's look at one more passage, and that's Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. In verse 25, Romans 11:25, For would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part have befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as, as is written. He goes on to quote the new covenant as his evidence. Now, um, he starts out in verse 25, he doesn't want them to be ignorant about two things. First of all, that the, the Israel's hardening is partial, and because it's partial, there will be Jews coming to faith, a point he made in verses 1 through 10 of this chapter. But secondly, that's also temporary until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. The Greek word for fullness means, means a set number. And God has a set number of Gentiles he intends to bring into the body of the Messiah. He's not told us what that set number is. So he must continue to evangelize and to uh, missionize and to witness until that set number is reached. And that's when the fullness of the Gentiles will be complete. The church will then be removed by means of the rapture. And then God will deal with Israel until all Israel is saved. Promising a national salvation based upon the new covenant. Now for the second facet, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Chapters 29 and 30 deal with a new covenant beyond the Mosaic one. 
Now, since the uh, land covenant, which is what I prefer to call this covenant, the land covenant is part of the fifth book of Moses, wouldn't it simply be part of the Mosaic covenant? How would, how would we distinguish it? Because in verse 1, notice he tells us this is a distinctive covenant. Chapter 29, verse 1, these are the words of the covenant which Jehovah commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Horeb is a mountain range which contains Mount Sinai, and that's where the Mosaic covenant was made. He points out the covenant about to be described in chapters 29 and 30 is going to be a distinctive covenant. Now, historically, this has been referred to as the Palestinian covenant because the term Palestinian used to refer to the Jewish population living in Palestine. But after the Six-Day War, the term Palestinian became more and more applied to the Arab population, no longer to the Jewish population. So although many of our writings, you will still see the term Palestinian covenant is no longer an appropriate name. For example, the um, Yasser Arafat and his uh, terrorist organization had a covenant which he also called the Palestinian covenant. The Mosaic one calls for Israel's restoration and the uh, Yasser Arafat uh, covenant called for Israel's elimination. Not quite the same thing. So in place of calling it the Palestinian, I think it's better to call it the land covenant. And for chapter, all of chapter 29, he points out a prophecy that's already been fulfilled historically. And he points out they'll fall into different periods of disobedience. It'll cause different kinds of divine discipline, but ultimately, there'll be a worldwide dispersion. And by the end of chapter 29, the worldwide dispersion is a fact. And the, uh, and the worldwide dispersion... Um, uh, finishes at the end of chapter 29. But chapter 30 continues to write, this is a passage we looked at on Friday night, but in verses 1 and 2 he points out that no matter where the Jews are living in the land uh, or in the world, they'll all come to faith. No matter where they're scattered, they'll all come to faith. And then secondly, verses 3 and 4, at that point, God will begin to gather them and bring them all back into the promised land. And he points out that even if the Jews are dispersed in heaven, they'll be brought back into the promised land because this would be a total restoration and a complete restoration to the promised land. Now, uh, a couple of passages we looked at previously. I won't, we don't want this to do it again, but let's look at one in particular, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. We noted in Isaiah chapter 43 the, um, that God considered the final restoration of Israel to be under magnitude <coughs> of the creation account of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But Jeremiah makes another historical comparison. Jeremiah chapter 23, and look at verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days come, says Jehovah, that they shall no more say, as Jehovah lives, that brought up the children of Israel of the land of Egypt. But as Jehovah lives, who brought up and led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all the countries where he had driven them, and, and, shall, uh, and they shall dwell in their own land. 
Jeremiah makes with a comparison with the Exodus. And just as Exodus was a supernatural act of God, so will the final regathering be a super act of God. And, the, and this is the second key facet of the final restoration, the regathering into the promised land based upon the land covenant. Now the third facet is the restoration of the land. Let's turn to as, uh, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is a multifaceted covenant which has at least 15 different provisions. The one we're going to focus on is the land promise. And when God first inaugurates the covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, he simply promises to Abraham that he'll be shown a land. Nothing more than that is promised. But then when, the, when he arrives into land, look at verse 7. And Jehovah appeared to Abram and said, Unto your seed will I give this land. Only when he arrives into the land itself, the promises that to his seed, to his descendants, he will give them the land. It doesn't say anything about Abraham personally, but to Abraham's seed. But now skip over to chapter 13 and look at verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. And Jehovah said to Abram after Lot was separated from him, Lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, to you will I give it, and to your seed forever. Verse 17, Arise, walk through land, in the length of it and the breadth of it, for unto you have I given it. Notice the land promise is now not only promised to the seed of Abraham, but to Abraham himself he will give this land to you. And to your seed, I will give this land. And in verse 17, he takes him, uh, tells him to take a walk. Everywhere he walks upon the land will someday be his. Now, what the replacement theology does is to claim that when God promised the land to Abram, he didn't mean real real estate. What he meant was he'll someday get to heaven. However, this renders many verses entirely meaningless. Verse 17, what is God asking him to do? Is he asking him, come up to heaven and spend a few days with me and see if you like the place, someday you'll get to live here? The only, verse 17 talks about the real piece of real estate, to walk the length of the land, to walk the breadth of the land. As he walks around the land and breadth of the land, he will be symbolically claiming ownership of the land, and he means a real piece of real estate. And so not only will, the, not only will his seed own it, but Abraham himself will be an owner. Now go to chapter 15. Here's the Abrahamic covenant is signed and sealed in a manner which renders it unconditional. So, and there are different kinds of covenants in ancient times. For example, there was a, a hand covenant, there was a salt covenant, there was a um, blood covenant. But the most solemn kind of covenant was a blood covenant. And when two people decide to make a blood covenant, they'll agree to all of the terms. They would then kill one or more animals 
by shedding blood. They would divide the animals in half um, and then line them up in rows and the two people making the covenant walk between the pieces of the covenant. And what they were saying is, may my blood be shed like this animal blood was shed if I don't keep the terms of the covenant. And if one party fails and therefore would be executed, the other one is now free from any further obligations. Now you find that both similarities, but one key dissimilarity. So verses 1 through uh, 11, God tells Abram to kill several animals by shedding blood, cut the animals in half, and line them up in rows. And then in verse 12 we read, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And, when it, and what God does is put Abram into a deep sleep, but it's also a visionary sleep, because he's very conscious what's happening around him. And now look at verse 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a flaming torch that passed between these pieces. In that day, Job made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. It will not be God and Abram together that walk between the pieces of the animals. But God takes on visible form, what we call the Shekhinah, the Shekinah glory, and he alone walks between the pieces of the animals. And by walking alone, it means the, he, he will render the covenant unconditional. It will not matter how often Abraham fails. He'll fail in the very next chapter, chapter 16. Nor will it matter how often his descendants fail. Nothing can render the covenant null and void. And um, this is an unconditional covenant. In fact, Abraham will fail in the very next chapter, chapter 16. But his failings will not render the covenant null and void. It is an unconditional covenant. Abraham altogether a total of eight sons. God did not choose to confirm the covenant through all eight sons, only to one specifically, and that is to Isaac. Skip over to chapter 26. And look at verse 2. And Jehovah appeared unto, uh, appeared unto him, meaning Isaac, and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell you of, sojourn in this land, and I will, I will be with you, and I will bless you unto you and to your seed. I will give all these lands. And I'll establish the oath which I swore unto Abraham your father. The covenant is confirmed only through one of his eight sons, and that is Isaac. And the same promise he made to Abram, notice he makes to Isaac, to you and to your seed, I will give this land. Isaac had two sons, and God did not confirm the covenant through both sons, only through one son, and that is Jacob. Skip over to chapter 28. In chapter 28, verse 13, And behold, Jehovah stood above it and said, I am Jehovah, your God, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land where you lie, to you will I give it, and to your seed. As to notice, the promise he made to Abraham and Isaac, he also makes to Jacob, to you and to your seed, I will give this land. Now Jacob had 12 sons, and God did choose to confirm the covenant through all 12 sons in Genesis chapter 49. And so 
the twelve sons will fall to the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, in this uh, covenant, he promises the land uh, the given to the patriarchs and to the and to the patriarchal descendants. Now, um, for some a couple of just uh, examples of prophetic development, let's go to Ezekiel chapter eleven. Ezekiel chapter eleven. Look at verse seventeen, chapter eleven, verse seventeen. Therefore say, thus says the Lord Jehovah, I will gather you from the peoples. Assembly out of the countries where you have been scattered, uh, and I will give you the land of Israel. I will give you the land of Israel, following a worldwide scattering and a worldwide uh, coming together again. And this will be a prophetic development of uh, the specific covenant. Let's look at another passage: Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. And look at verse twenty-five, Ezekiel twenty-eight and verse twenty-five. Thus says the Lord Jehovah, when I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the nations, then shall they dwell in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely therein. Yea, they shall build houses, plant vineyards, and shall dwell securely. Now executed judgments upon all those that do them despite round about them, and they shall know that I am Jehovah your God. So this is the third facet of Israel's final restoration, the restoration of the land,、uh, in keeping with the、uh, with the specific covenant. Let's go to the last facet, which is the reestablishment of the throne. I'll have to summarize this a bit. But about now, in the service, I begin to feel like an Egyptian mummy, <laughs> pressed for time. <laughs> Some of you didn't get didn't get that one thing on it. <laughs> the final facet is the reestablishment of the Davidic throne, and that is based upon the Davidic covenant. The two main passages on your outline. Second Samuel seven verses eleven through seventeen, and First Chronicles chapter seventeen verses ten through fifteen. Now these are parallel passages, but they have a different focus. The Samuel passage on David's immediate son, and that is Solomon. So he mentions if Solomon sins, God will discipline him, but not take away his loving kindness from him. But the Chronicles passage is, is focusing on David's distant son, the Messiah. There's no mention of any possible sin. There's no mention of any need for discipline with the Messiah. That would not be relevant. And so, put the and so ultimately points out there's going to be a God-man descendant from David that will sit upon David's throne, and he will be ruling over Israel and over the Gentile、uh, nations as well. For some examples of prophetic development, let's go to Psalm 89. Psalm 
Psalm 89 is a lengthy psalm. It has 52 verses, but the, fo- the focus of the whole psalm is God's fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the four eternal things promised in the Davidic covenant are reaffirmed in this psalm. For example, the eternal throne, the eternal kingdom, the eternal descendant, and the, and the eternal house. And um, all four elements keep coming out. Looking at, look at verse 3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Your seed will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Skip down to verse 29. His seed also will I make to endure forever, his throne as the days of heaven. Skip down to verse 34. My covenant will I not break, nor all the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness, I would not lie unto David. His seed shall, uh, shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, as the faithful witness in the sky. And just keeps coming back and forth within these four eternal things, focusing especially an eternal descendant of David himself. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 5. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his, and, his, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon the, his kingdom to establish and uphold it forever with justice and with righteousness, even forever, the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform this. In the first part of verse 6, you notice a child is born into the Jewish world upon whom the authority of the government will be given. In the second part of the verse, he's given four names, three of which, uh, four, uh, three of which clearly show deity. Two of these are the obvious ones. He'll be called the mighty God and then the father of eternity. In the first name is wonderful counselor, which in English would not imply deity. But in classical Hebrew, there are certain words which are used only of God, never of any human being. Either what God is or what God does. For example, the Hebrew word for create is the word bara, B-A-R-A. And it's a word that's used only of something that God can do. In English, we speak of people being creative. In biblical Hebrew, no human being can be creative. Only God can be creative. The same thing is true with the word wonderful that you find here. The word is pele, P-E-L-E. P-E-L-E. That's a word that's used of something that God is, never used of any human being. And so in English, it may not imply deity, but in Hebrew, that is the exact meaning. The only exception is the Prince of Peace, which could be used either way. The word Isaiah's book is used of God as well. So putting the both parts of the verse together, what we see here is the, what we see here is the messianic God man. And this messianic God man in verse seven is the one destined to sit upon the throne of David, ruling in justice and righteousness, which will be true only at the time the messianic kingdom is established. 
Okay, let's look at just one more example, and that's going to be Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Verse 5. Behold, the days come, says Jehovah, I'll raise up unto David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. His days shall be saved, and this one shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called Jehovah our righteousness. Notice in verse 5, a descendant of David sits upon the throne of David. That would focus on his humanity. He'll be the one that rule over saved Israel in the Messianic kingdom. But at the end of verse 6, notice what his name is. Yahweh said Kenum, Jehovah our righteousness. And the, letter, the four letters that make up God's name is his own personal name, never used of somebody strictly human. And the fact that this descent of David in his humanity also has the four letters of God's name also shows his deity. So be the messianic God-man, the rule over saved Israel in the messianic kingdom. The last passage that may be on your screen, which I won't deal with, Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 to 28. Ezekiel 37, 21 to 28 is worth reading sometime today. As you read it, you'll see all of these emphases about the four facets of Israel's final restoration intertwined and being fulfilled together. Now, in, de and, uh, in dealing with these issues, we should notice that just as God has, uh, f has promises to Israel, that should, and he intends to fulfill every promise, that should give us the encouragement as we live the spiritual life and in our present life. There are certain promises made to us as the body, not in place of the promises of Israel, but in addition to the promises made to Israel, we too have divine promises. And therefore, yeah, each of these promises is going to be fulfilled. And for us, the blessed hope again, is this coming into the year and causing the dead saints of the body, the Messiah, to be resurrected and immediately changing the living believers at the time of the rapture of the church. And that is our blessed hope. Did we get a rabbi story? Or? Did you want one? Yeah. Because it's already 12:15, so I was concerned. Okay, the the background to the story is based upon the observation that Jewish people like to argue. And there's, this is not the story I tell you, but it illustrates the story. There's a small story about two rabbis in the middle of winter in New York City, and um, they're out in the, a street where it's cold, and one and the Jewish people tend to move their hands when they argue. And one rabbi is arguing with his hands, arguing back and forth, arguing, and finally says, Sam, you argue for a while, my hands are cold. <laughs> and that's the um, background. Also, uh, to the background is that in the Jewish service in the synagogue, there is, at some point you stand up to say the Shema. The Shema is the hero of Israel, the Lord of God is the one Lord of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The story is of a Jewish man who was living in a city with many synagogues, but then because of a job change, he went 
had to move into a smaller town, which only had one synagogue. So he joined the synagogue, and then when the first Sabbath came, he went to the service. When it came, when it came time to say the Shema to his surprise, all of a sudden this big argument broke out between two groups in synagogue. This group says we have to say the Shema standing. This group says, no, we have to say the Shema sitting. And the whole service, all they did was argue on how to say the Shema. He figured it was a bad Sabbath. It'll be better next week. He went back to the next week, and um, again, when it came time to say the Shema, all they did was argue how to say it, uh, standing or sitting. This happened, this continued for several Sabbaths. So finally, he got tired of it, and he made an appointment with the president of the synagogue and asked him, isn't there an older member who was, uh, who was living when this synagogue was first planted? Maybe that person remembers what was the first tradition in dealing with how we say the Shema. Let's simply agree, whatever the first tradition was, standing or sitting, we'll follow that tradition and stop arguing every week. And the president said, you know, the rabbi who began the synagogue is still living. He's in a Jewish old age home. Go ahead and talk to him and find out what was the first tradition and we agree, whatever the first tradition was, we'll follow it. He went to see the rabbi and said, Rabbi, I joined the synagogue you started, but I have to tell you I'm very disappointed. Week after week, all we have is a big argument. And how do we say the Shema? So I came to ask you, what was the first tradition? Was to say, was to say the Shema standing? Rabbi says, say the Shema standing? No, 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 no. That's not our tradition. If you say the Shema standing, we all convert to Christianity. We don't say the Shema standing. The man then says, there must be to say the Shema sitting. Rabbi says, say the Shema sitting? No, 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 no. That's not our tradition. If you say the Shema sitting, it's all become Muslims. We don't say the Shema sitting. The man says, Rabbi, I'm confused because I came to find out what was the original tradition. Because every week we have this argument. Do we say it standing? Do we say it sitting? Week after week, all we have is a big argument, a big fight. Rabbi says, now that's the tradition. <laughs> Amen. Yes. We are.